descend upon Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad, and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking to his kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power. Enjoy the message. This week, we are going to be back in Matthew chapter 26. So again, I want to invite you to join me there in your Bibles, your Bible app or your Bible website or, or whatever it looks like for you to turn there with me. Last week, we began our series through death to life as we looked at some of the moments leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And we're going to be culminating in, in, on Good Friday with, with his death. But we know that the end, or the, the end of Jesus' story is not his death. And so we look at the story of Jesus as he moves through death back to life on Easter Sunday. Looking at, at, and last week we began this journey by looking at Matthew chapter 26. Looking at the heart of this chapter, at, at this couple hour stretch where the humanity of Jesus was on such full display. And we see the power of time spent with God inside of our most darkest moments. But all through chapter 26... There is this through line where, where it jumps in and out of these different stories and there's, there's this, this common thread that, that works through all of these events. There, there are these big moments in Jesus' life that we know about. In Matthew 26, we see Jesus anointed by Mary. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And in Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus and his disciples sharing the Last Supper. And in Matthew 26, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we, we talked about that last week. But as we read through Matthew chapter 26, we sort of jump in and out of these moments of the story with Jesus to, to see these other moments where, where while Jesus may be involved in them, they're not really about Jesus, but it's about those around him the, and the things that are swirling around Jesus. Moments about Judas and moments about Peter and moments about the religious leaders. But before we dive into our text today, I want to talk to you about something that I find utterly fascinating and in a way, and in a way really bizarre about the Bible and, and specifically the Gospels. In, in a wonderful way, all of those things are true, but it, it's wonderful and it fills me with hope. But nonetheless, it's, it's interesting. And so to show you this, and, and I promise this will connect back to our text, but, but I asked you to turn to the book of Matthew. Now, what do we know about Matthew? Well, we actually don't get to meet Matthew in, in much of these stories. He, he only appears as a character, as, as in more than just a name on a list in the book that has his own name on it. But what do we know? We, we know that he was a tax collector. And we know that he was one of the people that Jesus called and recruited into his closest circle of friends who, who became the apostles. Not the motorcycle club. We're, we're not talking about Matthew Mohan. We're talking about Matthew, the, the disciple here. And, and all four of the Gospels stem back to eyewitness accounts of these, dis, these disciples' memories and the memorized teachings of Jesus by the people in that circle. Mark and Luke were not themselves in that circle of 12. 
they were co-workers and associates of, of members of that group. And Matthew and John were, were written by members of Jesus' disciples, his apostles. And so all four of these accounts come right from the circle of Jesus' closest friends and his closest followers. And after Jesus' resurrection, these same guys, the, these 12, become leaders of this new belief system, th this new movement. Like Matthew and Peter would go on to start new church communities. And, and here's why I share all of this with you. Here's what sticks out to me about all of that and, and about these gospel accounts. When you read and think about the way that these 12 people are portrayed in the accounts themselves, they are highlighted and emphasized in bright colors as absolute failures. Absolute failures at following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, or, or taken this into account or not, but how would you like your name attached to a story that portrays you as a bumbling fool who doesn't get it, doesn't come through, and ultimately fails in the most crucial moment? And here's the thing that, that makes this a little different. You're trying to forward a movement with this account. Through these very stories, you have your name on them, and they portray you like this. And it's really remarkable. You're trying to get people to buy into your story and into your account. But in the middle of the story and in the middle of account, you don't look so good. In, in any culture, in any time, leaders promote themselves as the best. The right choice and the right option that you need to follow. Maximize their strengths and minimize and hide and don't acknowledge their failures. But in the history of Christianity, in the history of our faith, it's exactly the opposite. From the very beginning, it's a movement that highlights the failures of its leaders. Now, not specifically the failures of Jesus. Jesus didn't have any failures. But, but on every other level, all of the, the accounts, they, they highlight the failures of the people who led the movement of people trying to follow Jesus. And the through line that we're going to look at through today is a prime example of the failures of the people who would go on to be the leaders of this movement. And I just want you to hold on to this idea and this concept as, as we move through our text today. Because I think that there are big implications for us as followers of Jesus and as a community. Now, we touched on the first moment that we're going to look at last week, but I want to take just a little more time on this and on this week because it really leads into and lays the groundwork for all that we're going to talk about this week. So we're going to start in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26. In verse 31 it says, Then Jesus told them, Jesus and his disciples have just finished what we would know as the Last Supper. That, supper. Then Jesus told them, This very night... You will all fall away on account of me. Kind of a downer for the disciples to hear. Not, not really encouraging and uplifting, but, but sort of hurtful and, and challenging. This very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, but... Jesus' followers or follows up on those downer comments with hope. He, he, it's a hard moment, but he gives them hope. He says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. 
They finished the last Passover meal where Jesus is trying to explain to his closest friends that he's going to die. But they don't really seem to, to be getting it. They seem to assume that Jesus is speaking in some kind of metaphor or parable that, that somehow he must mean something by saying, I'm going to die. But, but what could that thing be? What could he mean by saying, I'm going to die? And during this meal, Jesus tries to use symbols to communicate it, the bread and the wine of the Passover meal. And, and then they leave the place where they're sharing this meal. And as they leave the, the place, they're heading, Scripture says they're heading to a place called the Mount of Olives. And Jesus again says to his disciples, look guys, this, this is going to be a really rough night. A really bad night is ahead. But Jesus, let, and Jesus lets them know, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to leave me. We're, this is all, all going to fall apart and I'm going to die. But he reminds them, but this isn't the end of the story. I, I'm going to rise again and we're all going to meet up again in Galilee. And, and to these comments, Peter, Peter is going to reply. And, and you quickly realize in Peter's reply, they're, they're still missing it. They're, they're not really hearing anything of, of what Jesus is actually saying. Look at Peter's reply in verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on my account, I never will. Listen, Jesus, if all of these other schmucks all fall away and abandon you, not me. I would never do that. Not me. All of these other guys, maybe, but not me. And, and to this, G Jesus says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Jesus says to Peter, listen, man, listen. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you are going to disown me three times. Before, Listen, listen, Peter. I know you say that, but before this very night is over, you specifically, forget all the other guys for a minute, we're not even talking about them, you specifically are going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Oh no, Jesus, I am your rock. Remember, you told me that. Even if I have to die, it's ride or die, baby. Me and you. I am with you to the end. And then all the other disciples chime in as well. Oh yeah, Jesus, me too, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, me too, I am with you. All the disciples say it together. I got you, Jesus, even if it means my life. Then from, from here in, in Matthew chapter 26, we look at the, the story of, of what happened last week. So, so we're going to jump down past that to verse 47. Jesus had just had his moment that, that we talked about last week after spending time on his face in tears with his father. He's now ready to go take on what's next, to face this next moment head on. So, so Jesus heads back to his disciples who've fallen asleep and, and wakes them up. And he says, okay, wake up, it's time. And then we come to verse 47. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was waking his disciples up, while, while he was telling them it's time, while he was saying this word, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Verse 48. Now the betrayer, speaking of, of Judas, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him. This, this was a normal Middle Eastern cultural greeting. So here's the point. It's dark. It's not Hollywood. There isn't any light. There's no bright lights or floodlights, no spotlights. And they're coming to arrest one person in a group of 12. So Judas arranges this signal. It's, it's a greeting of welcome and hospitality. The, the poetic irony of, of that is very strong. Verse 49. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Verse 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Hey, friend, what, what's up? What, what, what are you here for? Do, do what it is that you've come for. Now, now, some of us may have different translations, but the actual translation of what Jesus says is really sort of ambiguous and dense. He says, friend, for what you've come for. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Any guesses on who that might be? Peter doesn't say. But John, John, of course, lets us know that it's Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter, as we looked at last week, had, had failed Jesus when Jesus asked him to stay awake. He couldn't do it. He, he just kept falling asleep. It says his eyes were heavy. His, his flesh was weak. He kept falling asleep when Jesus was, needed him to stay awake. But now, now Peter's awake and he's going to do something. And he's living up to his words. He said, I will go down fighting. And so he's taking that on. Look, Jesus, I'm ready to fight for you. And he takes a swing with his sword to show it. And he still fails Jesus. Again, this time by doing something. Whether he does something or he does nothing, it seems like he's always failing Jesus. He puts out his sword and it struck says that he struck the servant of the high priest in his ear. Now, that is either extremely precise aim or extremely poor aim. He, was, he may have been a little off of what he was trying to do. Think of the moment. Do, do you think that's what he was aiming for? Of course that wasn't what he meant to do. And it's important to note who he was aiming for, the servant of the high priest. He picked the executive vice president the number two in charge, the executive assistant to the most important leader. And he takes a swing at him looking to cut his head off and he can't even do that right. He misses and he cuts off his ear. But to be clear, Peter doesn't simply fail because his aim was off. But Jesus brings some sharp correction to Peter. Verse 52, he says, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Put away your sword, Peter. Listen, if you chop off that guy's head, then you are just perpetuating the way the world does things. You just spread more hatred and more revenge and violence. But the kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about cuts right through all of that. 
And Jesus says, this stops now. This way of thinking, this way of acting, this way of doing things, this way of being people, this way of being us stops. This is not my kingdom. This is not the way we do things. Jesus confronts the violence of humanity for what it is and allows himself to become a victim to it in order to defeat it. He says in verse 53, Do you not think I can call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? How would all the stories of the prophets, of Zechariah, of Elijah, how, how would they all say, or how would they all say, how would everything that they said come true in this moment to the moment of the king being rejected by his people so that he could paradoxically save them? No, Peter. This is how this is supposed to happen. And then Jesus addresses the crowd, those who are there to arrest him. In verse 55, he says, In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion? If you understand the, the context of the word there, he's really asking, do you see me as a terrorist? That, that that's what, what the word really means. That, that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is the last time that Jesus will speak up for himself. And it's really not even to defend himself, but to expose the absurdity and the hypocrisy of, of what was really happening. The, the absurdity and the hypocrisy of the human condition. And then we read the last line of this, this scene. Um, I'm going to give you a second to just read it yourself. Because this is one of the most poignant moments in, in all of scripture. And one of the most poignant moments in the life of Jesus. As it says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This story began with, with all of them saying, oh, oh no, Jesus, we are with you. Jesus, all the way, even to the end, we have your back. You can count on us. And then we come to this place with all of them doing the exact opposite of that. But there's still one more leg to this night yet to be tied up. We're going to jump down to verse verse 69, where it says this. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then, verse 71, then he went out, out to the gateway where another Servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. He, he swore, I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're, you were with him. Your, your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me 
three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter had told Jesus, no matter what, I will be by your side. Until a servant girl came along and asked him if he knew Jesus. And he couldn't even stand up to a little girl. Everything that Jesus told him would happen, or would happen, happened. He had denied knowing Jesus three times. All of the disciples had left. Everything that Jesus had said had come to pass. And just a reminder to everyone about Peter. This is one of the most important church leaders in the early church. Imagine Peter comes to visit our city. Imagine he comes to our church and when when we're able to be together again, we, we have Peter as a guest speaker. And before the guest speaker, Peter, gets up to preach, I read this story as an introduction about him. And we stop and think, why on earth are we listening to him? And this is the story that's presented to the early church leaders at the very beginning of Jesus, of this Christian movement. This is how they're portrayed as failures. Try and think of any religious movement or any political movement or or whatever that has a part of its foundational documents, the absolute failure and lack of integrity of its most important leaders. But the point that I want to make this morning is is not to ridicule these guys or to mock them or to look down on them with disdain. They're going to grow and get better at this following Jesus thing and they're going to do some really incredible and important things. But there is something about camping out and highlighting this paradox of the utter failure of Jesus' disciples contrasted with Jesus' incredible faithfulness to them. Jesus comes out as strong and confident and consistent as he's ever been in the midst of everyone falling down around him. Telling Jesus, oh no, I will never let you down. I will never let you go. Them falling asleep time and again. Them cutting people's ears off. Them running away and deserting him. Them denying him even to little girls. Jesus doesn't bail on them. Jesus doesn't make them leave before this happens because I I don't need to be babysitting you right now. He doesn't go off by himself. He doesn't leave his disciples behind. He brings them with him. He doesn't do this by himself. His disciples are seemingly only there to make things harder for them or for him. And yet Jesus walks through this with them right up until they leave him. And as we look at Jesus, we see this picture of Jesus as the stability in the universe for us. It's his love, his his absolute confidence in his Father's love and commitment to him. And Jesus extends that same stability and commitment and love to his disciples, to, to to these failures. So what does this mean for us and for our story? There is comfort and a realism here for us. There are hundreds of thousands of communities of Jesus followers being together today like this and in other ways all over the world. Literally billions of people. And what we see here is that for these billions of people and and for me and for you today, that, that we're setting ourselves up for huge, 
shattered expectations and total failure if our faith and our hope is in us. We will fail. You will fail. We, we will fall short. But our faith and our hope isn't in whether or not we will remain faithful. It's in our God who will always remain faithful. Even when our, our remaining faithful, even when our attempts to remain faithful, even when our lack of remaining faithful makes everything harder. God promises that, that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And Jesus reaffirmed it when he said to his disciples a couple of chapters later, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. No matter what, I will be with you. It's time for the sleeper to wake. Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. Let the King of Glory